Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum, and with us, as always, is our own fiend of field and furrow, Joseph Wren. Welcome to the Fright Lab, all of you gruesome people. So, Joe, with your other media project, you recently had a chat about the details of a little event known as the Satanic Panic. Uh, For listeners who weren't aware, could you talk about that episode a little bit? Over at DiscussMetal.com, where we have so many podcasts about all things heavy metal and brutality, we did a discussion about the Satanic Panic and what it was like to survive the Satanic Panic as a metal fan. There was this time in our history, the 80s and the 90s, where everything was about how the metal music was making the kids do bad things. Spoiler, no it wasn't. Um, But to read from the synopsis directly, it used to be hard as an extreme metal fan in the 80s and 90s when everyone was sure every random corner of the world was brimming with hidden Satanic cults. But on Discuss Metal Live, we talked about that, and we talked about our generation who came a little bit later to the party who had to deal with the leftovers of satanic panic and stranger danger. That's as concise of a thing as you can get uh, from the metalhead side of it. And we're going to delve into the satanic panic a little bit in this episode because it's sort of pertinent. Um, but to get there, we've got to talk for a split second about one of my favorite subgenres of horror, that is to say, folk horror. Fans of more recent horror films like Midsommar or The Witch already have a pretty good idea of what modern examples of that subgenre already look like. Move on to the next sentence because I'm not going to be able to spit that out any better. <laughs> But if you want a good introduction to the subject of folk horror, you should look up an organization called the Folk Horror Revival and Urban Weird Project. For reference, that's weird, spelled W-Y-R-D. They have served as a really fun touchpoint for all things spooky media, and they're a generally good repository for folk horror. We're going to shorten their name to the FHR, or just Folk Horror Revival for the sake of going forward. Rather like the Suspiria episode, we sometimes need a good naming convention. The Folk Horror Revival cites a 2003 Fangoria interview with Piers Haggard, who directed a film called The Blood on Satan's Claw, and that's going to be the subject of our episode today. Haggard appears to have coined the term to describe this movie, to quote the FHR in their article, Folk Horror, an Introduction. The term was later popularized by Jonathan Rigby and Mark Gaddis in the Home Country's Horror episode of the 2010 documentary series A History of Horror. In it, three movies are mentioned in relation to folk horror and as such have become the unholy trinity of folk horror cinema, namely The Witchfinder General, 1968, The Blood on Satan's Claw, 1971, and The Wicker Man, 1973. It's a phenomenal film. Using these excellent, evocative movies as a blueprint, some have come to define folk horror as British movies from the late 1960s and 70s that have a rural, earthy association to ancient European pagan and witchcraft traditions or folklore. So this is a pretty good, bite-sized explanation of what folk horror is and what the films are that helped launch and popularize the genre. I absolutely want to cover Witchfinder General and The Wicker Man at some point, but they're fairly deep rabbit holes on their own, and they're a little outside of the scope of this episode. 
We're focusing on the blood on Satan's claw in this episode for a number of reasons. To start, I have reviewed this movie before a handful of years back, and a subsequent recent rewatch of it hasn't caused it to lose any charm, in my opinion. Second of all, folk horror has had a recent, um, I don't know, revival in the last few years. I'm happy to say that new folk horror movies are popping up to absolutely winning effect. But compared to something like slashers or, well, whatever, folk horror is less talked about and requires some background. Hopefully, our episode here will give you some solid ground to move from on this subject. But there's a bigger thing that I've been thinking about with the blood on Satan's claw and how it relates to some sadly modern situations. At the top of this episode, we talked a little bit about the satanic panic. So we need a concise definition of what satanic panic is, and note for the record that I'm using the word is. From the New York Times. Early in the 1980s, baseless conspiracy theories about cults committing mass child abuse spread around the country. Talk shows and news programs fanned fears, and the authorities investigated hundreds of allegations. Even as cases slowly collapsed and skepticism prevailed, defendants went to prison, families were traumatized, and millions of dollars were spent on prosecutions. The phenomenon was so sprawling that, in its aftermath, it took on several names, like the Ritual Abuse Scare or the Daycare Panic. But one name has increasingly stuck. The Satanic Panic. And that's a pretty decent start. Trying to explain how the satanic panic happened is, to say the least, messy and indirect. Some of the factors you could credibly point to. To start, the United States government, under the presidency of Ronald Reagan, had taken a sharp turn towards American Christian fundamentalism along with deeply conservative politics. This naturally brought with it a more literal belief in the Christian devil and, therefore, all sorts of vile, sinister machinations. Second of all, changes in the economy had caused an increase in both parents of a household being required to work outside of the home. As such, children were increasingly left with babysitters and, more than ever, daycare centers. Finally, popular media was beginning to be more flexible in terms of what was being allowed. For instance, Heavy metal acts were beginning to have a real growth in popularity across uh, newfound stuff like MTV, as well as traditional radio. Horror movies also started becoming more available, and games like Dungeons & Dragons were just more common. Now, we need to make it clear that this is not a comprehensive list of what caused the satanic panic. There are many, many factors that causes sociological events like this to occur, and we'll try to get some more points of reference into the show notes for you all. This subject has been extensively covered by individuals far more educated than myself, and I shouldn't be viewed as an authority on any subject, let alone this one. But like Joe's comments earlier, I have very distinct memories of living through that time period. There is a tendency for many commentators to believe that the satanic panic ended somewhere in the early 1990s, but we're going to talk about that a little more later on. But Lucas, you're thinking... This is a horror media commentary podcast. Why do we have to hear your sad old man stories? Well, dear listener, I know you don't want to hear about that. So we're going to deal with this film from a particular perspective. I am of the opinion that The Blood on Satan's Claw is a strangely prescient piece of media 
and essentially serves as a look into the mind of satanic panic conspiracy theorists. To wit, have you ever noticed something that happens when someone is on a particularly unhinged rant? There's this thing that we've all heard conspiracy theorists do. Specifically, they will begin to describe these absolutely lurid, horrendous situations that they claim their boogeyman du jour is doing. They're eating babies, crashing the value of the dollar, engaged in orgies and sacrifices. It's they're, a series of tubes! They're putting microchips in your body and worshipping owl statues in secret campgrounds for the mega-rich. They are both devil worshippers and atheists, fueled by Karl Marx and Aleister Crowley. It sounds like absolute nonsense. Because it is. This kind of talk is fucking crazy, and we all know it. But what the blood on Satan's claw does is show us what this sort of thinking would actually look like if it were actually occurring. It feels like this is the reality conspiracy theorists actually want. Now, to be clear, I don't want to think that this movie is anything more than a fun, ghoulish, kind of sleazy little romp good for titillation and cheap thrills i really like this movie it's a pretty straightforward moral tale with more or less clear-cut protagonists and villains good for a saturday afternoon and it's not a perfect film either some of the dialogue is clunky and kind of all over the place the special effects are very much a product of the early 1970s in britain and that is to say they're just not very good and it does show some pretty unsavory stuff. There's sexual violence in it about midway, which just kind of sucks to watch. So if that's something you aren't okay with, skip this movie. It's a flawed joint, but compared to, say, I don't know, Incident in a Ghost Land, The Blood on Satan's Claw is way more influential, way more interesting, and honestly has more to say. So let's dive into the plot, shall we? Part of me is upset that we're not talking about The Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't wait to bring up when we do talk about it, and it may come up throughout this episode. Uh, Christopher Lee, many times corrected people. It's not a horror film. It's it's a it's a story about a specific culture or community of people. It happens to be that there is one very horrifying thing that happens at the end of the movie. I also think technically the Wicker Man is a musical. I thoroughly agree. <laughs> It's the thing no one wants to talk about, but The Wicker Man is technically a musical. <laughs> well, there's the reconstructed DVD where they put some of the scenes back in that they found. Uh -huh. and... Yeah, I actually have that at home. I've got to be honest with you. It's not as good as the theatrical cut, believe it or not. Because the theatrical cut gets to the fucking point. Yeah, uh, it, the the quote-unquote director's cut, it's cool to see. It's, like, it's a neat artifact of a very interesting film, but the theatrical cut's just a lot a lot more interesting and, it, and like you said it gets to the fucking point he brought it up too many times like the the film had to be cut a lot and what we've even seen is not all of the film so hopefully it's going to be found someday and reconstructed and when the day that happens i will watch it for the sake of christopher fucking lee oh sure I'm, I'm a big fan of christopher lee as you know and it's one of those things with you know the wicker man is so daffy and so weird and you can tell christopher lee's having a blast the entire time <laughs> He, he is clearly having so much fun in that movie. He did that for no money. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Like He basically, to get the movie out, he said, yeah, I'll take a pay cut. Yeah, that's fine. Our film opens low to the ground, next to a deep furrow cut into the earth by a plow. The plow's operator is clearly preparing the land for some sort of new planting. And just beneath the dirt, 
the plow has turned up the remains of some terrible thing. Half man, half beast, all creepy. Needless to say, Ralph, our plow operator, is terrified. He runs off to find the judge, our film's somewhat dubious protagonist. He can't believe Ralph found anything in the field, immediately dismissing this as little more as the fancy of some rural peasant. The Blood on Satan's Claw takes place during the Enlightenment in England, around the 1700s, in an unnamed village and farmstead. The judge is visiting an old friend and her nephew, who has returned with his bride-to-be. Things swiftly go awry. An ancient evil entity, referred to in this case as Behemoth in later dialogue, is luring teens of the village into satanic ritual, perverse sexual acts, and far worse. Like I said, I think this movie is basically showing us what people with the most sincere beliefs in satanic panic mythos really thought was happening. Listen, I've spent years of my life listening to the most extreme genres of music. I've played through multiple Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, and I've basically watched horror films five days a week, every week, for the last two years. Why isn't that I haven't conquered the world or been invited to secret rituals amongst the secret rulers of the world? I gotta be honest with you, Joe. I think we've all been duped. And you were misled. The film you should have been watching, if you wanted to really be influenced, was Haxon. You know, this is not the second time this week that someone has brought up Haxon, which says something about the course of my life that I'm actually pretty proud of. Uh, but at the same time, one of these days, we're gonna, along with the Wicker Man, we're gonna have to do Haxon, but... I know you're familiar with Haxon. <laughs> So, for, for the audience, uh, for the uninitiated, Haxon is a film that came out, I think, what, 1929? Something like that? I'll have to look it up to be accurate, but it was a silent film. Yeah, it was a silent film that came out, uh, I believe it was a Danish film, uh, purporting to be about the real affairs of witchcraft throughout Europe, throughout the ages. It is, to say the very least, a pretty disturbing movie. It's it's extremely dark. The imagery is incredibly bizarre. There's actually a pretty neat edit of the film that came out in the, I want to say, 70s or 80s, just called Witchcraft Throughout the Ages, narrated by William S. Burroughs, of all people. Um, it's a really, really fascinating piece of film. And one of these days, I'm going to figure out how I want to talk about Haxon. I'm not, I'm not sure how at this point. Uh, maybe again at a time period when I'm talking way less about folk horror, it'll be a thing that comes up, but man, Hexen's good. It's, it's such a neat film. And you have to realize he wasn't an actor. He really was Satan. No, wait, I'm sorry. I'm back to shadow <laughs> of the vampire again. I apologize. <laughs> so like I said, the blood on Satan's claw is a somewhat silly, like sleazy affair coated with more dirt than gore, but it's also a fun watch. And like most things I enjoy it has just this killer atmosphere. But just because I enjoy this movie, I don't think that Piers Haggard was looking into a crystal ball to predict the future. Though, admittedly, if Haggard was doing some sort of sorcery and predicted it, it would at least be on brand, right? Though, I do think that he was making a statement on how this shit always seems to happen. And if we're all going to be honest about history, uh, this is a line of thinking that for whatever reason just refuses to go away. As I was thinking about this movie and the satanic panic, I came upon this really great article by Allison S. Burke entitled The Myth of Moral Panics, and we're going to link to that in the show notes so you guys can read it later on. This article is pretty eye-opening and offers an insight into more than 
the internal mechanics of how Satanic Panic happened. Sure, I know the events. There were books like Michelle Remembers where a woman and her therapist, who later became her husband, not exactly the most ethical decision, uh, made the claim of quote-unquote recovering memories of being abused by devil-worshipping cults. She allegedly also remembered being tortured and disfigured by this group and only then being saved by a literal intervention by the literal God. Needless to say, there are no facts to back up her story or claim other than her quote-unquote memory, and plenty of people came forward to debunk her story. Or we can talk about comedian-turned-preacher Mike Warnke, who claimed to have been the former head of a satanic coven, despite there being literally no tangible evidence of this and you know, also being attacked by a small army of debunkers who I tend to believe are you know, factual again. Uh, I'm sorry, am I ranting again, Joe? You are a little bit, but it's fine. You know, I think some of the worst films of all time, the answer is an intervention by the literal God. At the same time, there are some films that play with that idea and pull that off very well. When you talk about a story about horror and disfigurement that really happened, but God saved me, I feel like you want attention and that's why you're talking about it because most of the people I know who believe God has stepped in, they don't talk about it in front of the TV cameras. They might tell you the story. They might tell me the story. I might even tell you a story, but you're not on talking about how all these terrible things happened. And by the way, by the book for the whole story, it starts to sound like a plot device. And a grift. I mean, we can't argue. You just made this very incredible point that, oh yeah, and buy the book to get the rest of the story. In the end, a lot of it's a grift. So back to Burke's article. I'm going to kind of quote heavily from this piece, but you'll see I have a good reason for it, I think. Uh, from the article, Burke says, quote, Moral panics arise when distorted mass media campaigns create fear and reinforce previously held or stereotyped beliefs frequently centered around ethnicity, religion, or social class. Uh, she goes on to describe one of the most important factors in moral panics as, quote, folk devils. Again, from her article, first, folk devils are the people who are blamed for being allegedly responsible for the threat to society. Folk devils are completely negative and have no redeeming qualities. The long and short version is that folk devils must exist for moral panics to exist. And, in effect, that group of folk devils almost always ends up being perceived as a group of outsiders. One doesn't need to strain their imagination or memories too hard to see groups who've all ended up as folk devils. Everyone from Jewish people to African Americans to accused communists uh, they've all been publicly persecuted here in America and abroad. And let's not forget that at one point, Catholics were viewed as dangerous outsiders actively persecuted by the KKK here in the United States. In many regards, the Blood on Satan's Claw identifies their outsiders as a group of teens and a handful of adults in a small rural community. At best, they are mindless drones being led in acts of vile depravity. And at worst, they're like our primary villain, ironically named Angel, who is guiding her peers and fellow villagers to an acts of demonic worship and sexual assault and murder. They are the wanton disciples of an ancient evil named Behemoth. Now, not only is the name Behemoth 
uh, used for the name of an especially kick-ass black metal band. It is the name of a demon associated with classic demonology. Uh, the name first appears to pop up in the biblical book of Job. Behemoth also pops up in some of the Apocrypha, as well as eventually gets it, uh, I don't know, time to shine, I guess, uh, in a text called the Infernal Dictionary, published in 1818. The Infernal Dictionary is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It gives basic descriptions of all sorts of evil stuff. Here, Behemoth is associated with gluttony. Why is Behemoth attacking some tiny village in rural England? If it's a force for, you know, like overeating and gluttony, that's a, that's a good question and leads us to our next point about the absurdity of satanic panic and moral panics more broadly. Why would a group of devil worshiping maniacs want to conjure up this entity? Well, maybe that's the wrong question because in the satanic panic, as the name implies, the devil was very real and trying to, I, I guess, conquer the world. So why does the force of ultimate evil in the universe want to do, well, anything? One of the things I love about the blood on Satan's claw is that for as much fun as it is, it kind of doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's hinted that the forces of darkness can conquer the world if they can succeed in this tiny village and manor house. Cool, I guess. But isn't that kind of like small potatoes? Isn't that some junior varsity stuff? Why isn't Behemoth or one of these demons going after the people of London or Paris? Wouldn't that be more, I don't know, strategic? Well, the same thing could be said about Satanic Panic. Why would these hideous forces of darkness want to take over the McMartin Preschool, uh, which was located in Los Angeles County? The trials associated with the McMartin Preschool, where the staff of the school was accused of satanic ritual abuse, it would go on to be one of the most expensive court proceedings in American history. The McMartin trial ruined a number of people's lives with imprisonment, financial disaster, and social sanctionings nearly beyond imagination. If you are like me, asking these sorts of questions is genuinely brain-breaking. In order for accusations of devil worship at McMartin, or anywhere else for that matter, to work, there would need to be a massive group of highly connected, highly powerful people all engaged and empowered by a nearly omniscient evil literally hellbent on enslaving most of the world and empowering the tiny minority to control them. Does any of this sound familiar? This is not just a rough outline of every anti-Semitic conspiracy theory in history and the satanic, but also conspiracy theories like QAnon. Look, it's fun in horror movies, but real life? Well, I think we've seen the end result of that sort of thinking, haven't we? Many times. As we've talked about before, one of the reasons horror is so fascinating is that it allows us a place to really look at stuff that's unacceptable or taboo. Horror allows us a space to talk about moral panics and conspiracy theories, for instance. And I think Piers Haggard and Robert Wynn Simmons, who co-wrote the script with Haggard, were making something really fascinating here. Folklore is something that many of us modern humans are really disconnected from, and folk horror media does a great job of showing us little slivers of a life that used to be really quite common, even if it's purely fictional. One of the reasons that Robert Eggers' The Witch was so effective, I think, is that it relied heavily on realism for something that is purely fantasy, a blend of period-correct language, sets, and writing. 
the entire plot of The Witch is based on incidents of witch hunts throughout history. I mean, all of those stories have some root in some historical recounting. And that creates this heady sort of melange loaded with chills and scares. And you can completely tune out and just have fun with movies like The Witch or The Blood on Satan's Claw. I'm completely fine with that sort of use of film. In other words, you are not required to waste your life overthinking movies like this. But... Something I love about horror, when it's done well, is that it gives us the space to talk about those sorts of complicated subjects. In many regards, the satanic panic is still happening today. Conspiracy beliefs are more well-known today on the account of stuff like the internet. And we as a society have to decide for ourselves what we are willing to believe in. For those of us in the United States, we are dealing with roughly 330 million people all of who are viewing the world in their own ways. But we also all have to deal with the fact that we share an objective world. There's the sort of naive part of me that wants to believe that the media, for all of its ills, can help us ask hard questions about what we all believe. And I don't want this episode to end on a down note, right? This is supposed to be a horror movie podcast, and I feel like I haven't actually talked about this movie or folk horror enough in general. So, in our next episode, I'm actually going to dive into another folk horror joint entitled Eyes of Fire. There, I'm going to dig into some of the tropes and ask some cinematic questions that offer a compare-contrast, maybe not statedly, but offer a compare-and-contrast situation with The Blood on Satan's Claw. This podcast could almost become a dedicated folk horror show, but rest assured, there are so many more metaphorical fields we should be harvesting from, right? In between recordings, Joe and I had this kind of interesting uh, side conversation. He said he had something in his back pocket that he had been thinking about a lot. Joe, what was that thing you were uh, talking about? I really liked the point you made about why is it always Satan is trying to take over the smallest subset of the community or the people. It's either our town is being taken down and you mentioned it. That sounds like every hate speech I've ever heard in my life because one person is trying to get people to just do what I say. I want to be important. And for some reason, it made me think about the plot of, is it Exorcist 3 or 4, where the little girl thinks her daddy's in the lamp? Oh, I don't... Okay, so to the best of my knowledge, I think that's 3. I think that's Exorcist 3. I... Honestly, I, I have kind of tuned out of the Exorcist movies a long time ago. But yeah, I think I remember that subplot that you were talking about. It's absolutely absurd. And maybe it's not a perfect representation of this theme. <laughs> but yes, The Exorcist is a scary movie about a demon and a little girl. <laughs> but when you take it a little bit further, how is the devil going to take over the entire world by sending his most powerful followers to go... And occupy a lamp. <laughs> Just get rid of the fucking lamp! <laughs> Which, spoilers, is what happens at the end of the movie. You know, and that's the... the Grandma funny... comes in badass, like, fuck you, get out of my house! And that's kind of the funny thing about the, the, uh, the whole satanic panic thing at the end of the day, is that it doesn't hold up under an ounce of intellectual scrutiny, right? The, the instant uh, scrutiny... Did I... Suddenly, I just realized I can't remember how to pronounce that word. Scrutiny. Uh, it, the funny thing about the satanic panic is it doesn't hold up under an ounce of intellectual scrutiny. 
And it's kind of a shame, right? You would hope that something that patently nuts, that completely removed from not just reality, but from evidence, no evidence was ever found that was in just even remotely convincing. And yet there are some people whose worldview is so completely convoluted that in the end they end up uh, following that and believing that it's it's uh, I, i'm gonna move off that subject we'll have to edit some parts here anyway so what do you think what genre of horror is best for talking about social issues does the blood on satan's claw deserve its acclaim for being the start of a subgenre? and what folk horror films do you love please let us know email us at the fright lab podcast gmail.com to let us know what you think Joe, where can our listeners find your other work? I mentioned it at the top of the hour. If you are a fan of all things heavy metal, you need to be listening to all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com, where we talk about your favorite bands, our favorite bands, and we talk about subjects like the Satanic Panic and how it felt to grow up after that. These are the things we're talking about all the time, and I think horror and metal go together really well. A lot of people that listen to heavy metal also watch horror movies, right? Either because it's cool or because they just don't want to watch the happy stories today. So I think you need to listen to all the podcasts, but you definitely need to be going to FrightLabPodcast.com. If you have found this episode on Apple Podcasts or if you found it on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a five-star review. Send us comments. Again, Lucas said it, thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And if you are the kind of person that likes to make scary sounds for fun or for money, we want to hear from you as well because we like scary sounds and we want to hear some strange ambient masterpieces on the newest episodes of this podcast. Seriously, uh, Joe and I are both big, big enthusiasts of indie music and indie art. If you are making uh, ambient music with a horror band or you are making some horror-themed heavy metal, whichever the case is, let us know. We would like to give you guys a shout-out on the air and maybe even play your music somewhere in the episode. As always, The Fright Lab is written by me, Lucas Yoakum, and is co-hosted, engineered, and produced by Joseph Wren. Uh, as stated, we're going to have some social media outlets here soon, and we want to thank you all for listening. You know, being able to talk about horror movies and its connection to, well, everything else, is something that I really love and have wanted to do for years. And listeners like you are giving me a space to indulge in that and live out a little dream. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. You and I were just uh, talking about the the Beastmaster movies. Which... Behold the words of oh, God. the Game Master. God. Okay, so the first Beastmaster movie is pretty typical of like B-grade 80s sword and sorcery stuff. It's not an especially interesting movie, but it's fun and it's stupid. But there's this moment in Beastmaster I've been thinking about for 30 fucking years, okay? So there's this scene midway through where Dar, the Beastmaster, uh, comes upon this dark scene. He walks up and there's a tree and there's all these people hanging from the tree and he suddenly gets attacked by bat monsters, which can reduce people <laughs> to goo by wrapping their wings around their victims, I guess, and doing something. It's never fully shown, but they reduce their victims to bones and goo. 
I have been thinking about that scene for 30 years. And the reason why, where the fuck did it come from? It is completely incoherent. It, it serves only two values. One, at the end of the movie when you need it to, to wrap up the plot at least somewhat comfortably. But also just midway through, it's like, oh, and now this is a creature feature. Now this is a horror movie. It's a genuinely creepy scene. I've rewatched it plenty of times as an adult, so it's like not that I was hallucinating how scary it is. It's just real fucking weird. What the fuck was going on in that movie that they had to throw that in? You have to remember, Lucas, there is an entire part of the Hollywood business that comes down to, we have this, we have this, we have this, this needs to be in the movie. I gave you $5 million. I'm an executive producer. At some point, they have to fight a giant spider. So oh. the answer to your question is, yeah. somebody paid for those costumes to be made and said, <laughs> you're going to use them in the fucking movie or I'm pulling my funding. Someone in between lines of cocaine said, Bat Monsters. We're going to do Bat Monsters. I'd also like to point out something that I've been dealing with for my entire life. Mm. So this is Kevin Bacon. Uh. Not that we need an introduction. This is Mark Singer, who played the Beastmaster. Please tell me Mark Singer is not a time-traveling Kevin Bacon with plastic surgery. The resemblance is admittedly a little eerie when you frame it like that. It's a little absurd, isn't it? Strange. I used to it, get them I, confused when I was very small. You can you can say that Mark Singer is a time-traveling Kevin Bacon with plastic surgery, or you can describe Mark Singer as an off-brand Kevin Bacon. He is uh, He is the Aldi brand Kevin Bacon. For our Canadian friends, it would be uh, whatever that that story is. I'm sorry. I said Canadian. What I meant to say for our Ontario friends, it's the one in the yellow label. Uh. 